Hello. <laughs> I'm going to lean down because I'm going to let my daughter read in just a second, but I'll just lean down for right now. Well, I'm not going to mess with her right now. I'm Blake Sherman. Uh, this is my wife, Brittany, and these are our kids, Aubrey and Lake. Uh, we've been members here at Cross Point for about nine years now, I believe. Um, but anyway, we're going to have Aubrey start our scripture reading, and then Brittany's going to read a little bit, and then I'll pray. Acts 9 through... Eight. Tw- Wait. Yeah. Huh? Eight. Seven. Acts 8, Why 9 through... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Acts 8, 9 through 25. It says, right Saul... Here, right here. Oh, my gosh. Now there was a man named Simon who fortunately, formally, was practicing a mad magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what it is is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention to be, because he had for long, for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the God, the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being wait, what? They're being baptized men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed and after being baptized he continued on with Philip and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Amen. 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 Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit." But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. All right, let's pray. Father God, I just pray that 
Lord, this morning that the words of that last song, all, all hail King Jesus, Lord, is the anthem of our hearts. Lord God, I just pray that, to thank, thank you, Lord, that we're able to come together, Lord, and worship freely, Lord, and I pray that that's, that's not lost on us today. Lord God, I'm just so thankful for this church, and I'm thankful for the direction that we're headed, Lord. Lord, we're excited to see uh, what you have in store for Crosspoint, Lord. I just pray, Lord, that you would speak through Justin this morning as we continue our study in Acts, Lord, that we would all have open hearts, Lord, and I just pray, Lord, thanking you so much for grace and mercy and salvation, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It is good to see you all here. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I hope you've already turned to Acts 8, but I'm also going to invite you to turn uh, to Matthew chapter 13. And Matthew chapter 13 as well, I will read out of Matthew first, then we'll go back uh, to the book of Acts. I need to do some groundwork in Matthew to to set up the text for uh, Acts chapter 8. But uh, if you're a guest with us, we've uh, last year, uh, last September, we started through studying through the book of Acts. We carried through May, took the summer off, and then two weeks ago, we kicked back off, and so we're in Acts chapter 8 now. Uh, and so, <clears throat> anyway, I'm excited about the text that we have this, this morning. Uh, if you remember, as we were covering uh, Acts uh, last, uh, last semester, uh, last year, uh, we, we saw this, really this this model that Luke used whenever he was writing the book of Acts that he would uh, zoom out, right? He would zoom out and give us like a summary statement, like when we have Acts Acts 2.42, you know, when they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to breaking bread, uh, that type of thing. So there's a zoom out statement that he kind of gives a summary of community life, and then he immediately zooms all the way to ground level and gives us an example, right? So we ended chapter 2, with this is what the church was doing day by day. And then chapter three begins, they zoom back in ground level and Peter and John are what? Walking to the temple, that's when we're in the hill. The layman, and we see that again in chapter four, chapter five. Well, in chapter eight, we have another one of those zoom out, zoom ins. And so last week, Luke was zoomed out, right? And so at the beginning of chapter eight, uh, we, we read that Saul proved the execution of Stephen uh, and there arose that day a great persecution. Uh, and then if you jump down to verse four, uh, this is kind of can be a launching pad for the text this morning. In verse four, it says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And so there, Luke gives us this, this zoomed out, 30,000 foot view of, of persecution happened. And because of persecution, the apostles, they stayed in Jerusalem, but everyone else, they began to flee. They began to scatter into the lands of Judea and Samaria. It says they went down. Technically, it was north, but they went down because Jerusalem was elevated. So when you see they went down, it's literally just coming down like off of a mountain. And so we see this 30,000 foot view. This is what was going on. Uh, Some things I want to remind you of last week uh, that's going to kind of give us a picture or focus this morning is that in verse four, whenever it says those who were 
persecuted as they were scattered is the same word of the parable of the soils uh, when it says that they, they scattered the seeds on the ground. And Luke made mention of how in God's sovereignty, this thing that looked like evil, that the enemy was getting the upper hand, was actually scattering the church out of Jerusalem. And as they were going, they were scattering the gospel. So ultimately, persecution was ultimately God in his sovereignty picking up Christians and scattering them through Judea and Samaria. And Luke writes that as they were going, they went about preaching the word. And I just had to make mention of this. This word preaching here, whenever you and, you and I think about preaching, we think about like there's somebody standing in front of a group of people and he's preaching the gospel, right? That's usually our image of preaching the good news or preaching the word. The text here, this word preaching the gospel isn't one of like uh, a profession or proper, if you will. Literally, the, the, the language could be that they were gossiping the gospel. Uh, so as they were being scattered, as God in his sovereignty was scattering the seed of the church through persecution, as they were scattering, they were literally just talking about the gospel. They were talking about the word. Could you imagine that? Uh, being in Samaria, then all of a sudden this new guy comes and is like, you're not from here. Why are you here? Well, I'm from Jerusalem. I've been living around there, but I had to, I had to flee because uh, persecution began because I'm a, I'm a follower of Christ. Oh, yeah, is that... And you actually stayed faithful to that? Yeah, well, and so you can imagine as they were being scattered, they were literally just talking about the word. They were, they were gossiping the gospel. They were sharing the gospel as they went. It's a beautiful picture there. To get our attention to where in Acts chapter 8, because you read it as Aubrey and Brittany, or you listened to it as Aubrey and Brittany were reading, there were some, some big things there. All right, so we got to deal with this Simon guy who was a magician who... Did he get saved or did he not get saved? And what is this deal about the people in Samaria believing in Jesus, but they didn't receive the Holy Spirit till the apostles laid their hands on them? All right, so there's some things, we, there's some, some, some deep waters we got to tread through. Uh, and my time's already gone, but we're going to hang out in it. We're going to, so bear with me this morning. Uh, and so well, those are kind of the things that we have to wrestle through. Uh, and so, but to do that, I want to paint a picture for you. So last week, Luke kind of mentioned, uh, what did he call them? The, uh, the half-breeds and heretics, right? When he was talking about the Samaritans uh, last week, uh, that there was this big divide between, uh, tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. We've, we, if you walk through the Gospels, you read the Gospels, you see that there was this divide, this tension. And I, uh, the Lord reminded me of this passage in Luke chapter 9 this morning. If you really want to see the hatred that the Jews had for the Samaritans, uh, this is a great example. In Luke chapter 9, so come on the screen, verse 52, it says, this is Jesus. He, he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, but his face was set, uh, because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Uh, and so that's the, these, these same apostles that are now going into Samaria. Just a few chapters earlier, like, they don't believe in Jesus, let's burn them up. They don't deserve it. Like, you see this hatred, even this religious and this really heritage, if you will, because one, the, the Jews looked on at the Samaritans as half-breeds because they had intermarried with the Assyrians and they were, obviously, they were looked down upon because they were, just by who they were, were unclean. But their, their religion, if you will, was really just a hodgepodge of things. Uh, but I did learn this week that they actually, inside their religion, they, there was an expectation of a Messiah. 
Uh, which would make a lot of sense whenever Philip shows up saying, hey, yeah, you're looking for the Messiah. His name's Jesus. And so even in their weird religion, that they still had this hopes of, of one coming that was going to rescue them. And so here you see, let's put everything into context, right? So Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. The the ones that Jesus gives that to were the same ones a few chapters later, like, I hate the Samaritans. Let's burn them up. But Jesus says, no, you're going to be my witnesses to the Samaritans. You're going to have to take this gospel to these people who you don't like, who there's this tension both who you like at their nationality, but also in their religion. And so now we're getting to chapter eight where the gospel is actually going to these people that a few chapters later, the brothers are like, let's burn them up. Done with them. We don't want anything to do with them. There's this tension that we're seeing this ultimately, this barrier that's being crossed. And we'll get to that in a little bit. The second big thing that I want you to see concerning Simon is is Matthew chapter 13. I think I told you to flip there when I first got up here. Something very interesting that as we've been walking through the book of Acts that I've loved to see is that there were teachings of Jesus in his three years with his disciples that he taught them, prepared them for, that we've already seen come true for them in the first six, seven chapters of Acts. Things like when you get delivered over to rulers, don't worry about what to say, but it won't be you speaking, but what the Holy Spirit's speaking through. There's, there's uh, things that Jesus had prepared and talked about that we see come to fruition in just those first couple chapters. Well, even with Simon, we see one of the teachings of Christ kind of before our eyes. And one of the things about teaching the way that we do here, uh, we, if you're a guest with us, we just like to walk verse by verse. We don't add a lot to it. We just kind of walk through. And one of the hard things about doing that is sometimes the text doesn't necessarily, it's not real joyful, right? There's this idea that preachers are supposed to come up here with all the personality and energy, make you feel better and things like that. But if you read this text, it's like, it's not the most encouraging thing in the world. There's this guy who, who believed, was baptized, it never was a true born-again believer. It's a text that we have to wrestle with. And I'm going to be honest with you from the get-go, I hope that you wrestle with it this morning. Because the, inside where we are in South Mississippi, there's a, lot, there's a lot of ways, there's a lot of Simon, there could be a lot of Simon um, Magus in our context. I believe the right thing. I was even baptized. And so I want us to really navigate with it. I wouldn't be a good preacher or a pastor if I didn't say, hey, we need to wrestle with this text this morning. And I hope it does get in your business a little bit. It's not going to be me. It's going to be the text. Okay? Everybody good with that? Everybody say yes. This means no. This means I don't care. Uh, Looking around for arms crossed, but. All right, let's look. Matthew chapter 13, this is the parable of the, of the sower or, or the soils. If you're, I'm going to read it fast because we do uh, have a short on time. But it says, verse 3, this is Jesus talking to the crowds here. It says, and he told them things in parables saying, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell among the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Verse 5, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth, uh, since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they were withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them, and other seeds fell 
On good soil and produce grain some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So when you're reading these these parables of souls, think about that picture, God scattering the seeds of the church as they're being persecuted. So as the seed is being cast out to the soil, this is a picture. So then he explains that parable in verse 18. It says, here then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when the tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for, the, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what is sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in, case, in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and another thirty. So Jesus is explaining this idea that, listen, there will be this, the same seed is sown. And there are going to be some who are like a Simon who maybe receive it, but whenever the cares of the world come in, it, it withers away. Or when tribulation comes, he turns away. There, there are going to be some, uh, what we read last week, there's a lot of good seed and a lot of good soul. The Samaritans were receiving it with great joy. Everybody with me? But here in this context, looking at this parable, Jesus says, listen to me. There are going to be times whenever you're preaching the gospel, you're not, you're not in charge of the soil, but as you're preaching, there are going to be some who come to faith that are true born-again believers. They're going to become that, 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 that grow up real quick, but the reality is they're never born again. They're going, they're going to turn aside. There's going to be some who never even choose to believe at all. They're completely rocky ground. And that's the reality is, is that every Sunday morning, as we're preaching the gospel, we are scattering seed on soil. And there are some who receive. There are some who, eh, there are some who, no. Nah. Right there, there's the different soils, but one thing that really caught me big time is in when we read about, actually, let's just hold your place there. I may have to just go halfway this morning, but Acts chapter 8, again, verse 13 says, Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, seeing signs and great miracles that he performed. So I struggled with Philip for a little bit. So obviously he was, he was the soil that believed in some sense, so much so that there was nothing about Philip, I mean, nothing about Simon that caught Philip off guard. Philip baptized him and he kept, well, he kept going with Philip. So what's the picture here? So if you keep reading, now go back to chapter, Matthew chapter 13, there's another parable that Jesus teaches. In Matthew 13, verse 24, it's the parable of the weeds. It says, he put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while, he was, while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the plants come up and bore grain, then went the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, do you not sow good seeds in your field? And when, uh, how then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the, the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? He said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat. Pause for a moment. 
Here's the crazy thing. Whenever both are growing, you can't tell the difference between the wheat and the tear. Y'all remember Ascend the Hill two years ago? Whenever like we cut the trail through the, like we let the grass grow and we just kind of walked through it. That stuff looked like wheat, but listen to me, it was weeds. There's nothing about it that you could go do anything with. And that's the picture is, no, don't go try to, to take, take, take care of the tares or the weeds because in doing so, you're going, you may tear down one of the, some of the wheat. He said, let, verse 30, let both grow until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds and first and bind them to, in bundles to be burned and gather the wheat into my barn. To which he goes in verse 36 to explain it. I'm glad for the explanations of the parables. Anybody else? Anybody yeah, that, that just, Okay. I'm a simple man. Verse 36 says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. I'm, I'm also thankful for dumb disciples. That's uh, right. So not only a patient Savior, but dumb disciples, because that's where we are. So Jesus, can you please explain this to us? Verse 37, so get the picture. Now, Acts chapter 8, scattering the seeds, right? Scattering the seeds of the gospel through the church being persecuted. Here he is. Verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. So this is Jesus sending his church out. He is scattering the seed. Verse 38, the field is the world, and the good seed is the son of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. But just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father who hear, he who has ears let him hear. What he's saying is listen to me. This is something you need to listen to. That the reality is in God's kingdom, what Jesus teaches us is that our enemy will come sow seeds of wheat, inside, uh, seeds of, of tares inside God's people. It's an attack of the enemy. And I believe 100%, you, may, can, you can disagree with me because I'm not the smartest person in the world, that this Simon Magus here, Simon the magician, was one that our, his, our enemy planted within the body. Here we see our first false faith, if you will, a belief that doesn't save. And I'll explain a little bit more how I want to think that, but the first, there's really two big truths. I'm going to go ahead and give you both big truths this morning that we see in this text. The first thing is that we see God's work in exposing a false convert. The second thing that we'll see in a little bit, if you want to go ahead and write it down, is God's work in displaying his design for one church. Both of those are points on those two big things that probably all of us are thinking. What's Simon a believer? What's up with the apostles laying hands on the church for them to get the Holy Spirit? I thought we'd get that at salvation. So that's the that's two big take-homes in this text. And so I'm at least going to get through number one. I want to see, show you four things this morning, characteristics of a false belief, if you will, that we see in Simon, this tear, if you will. Uh, because ultimately it wasn't until the apostles came and they tried to buy the Holy Spirit that we realized, wait, he don't, <laughs> he's not one of us. Can't purchase that. Uh, you can't purchase him. Anyway, so the first thing that we see is that about false belief is that, or belief that doesn't save is that Simon had a wrong view of himself. Like this is the big thing that keeps people from truly receiving the gospel. And what we see in verse nine, it says, there's a man named 
Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and he amazed people in Samaria. But here it is, ready? Saying that he himself was somebody great. That, that Simon in his own, in, his, who, he, in who he was, he, he thought a little bit more about himself than he ought to. Uh, and so much so that he, he would go in this trickery, that he was a, he was a, he was a magician, he was, a, he was in sorcery. Like, remember the wise men that came to see baby Jesus? He would be in the same group as like this magi, this, uh, those who are astronomers, if you will. But they, he, he, what, he was in trickery. He, he would trick people to gain power. And actually it says that the Samaritans were under his influence, so much so that what does the verse 10 say? Uh, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. As in, he is like the revelation to us from God. Like put him, like not as God, but right under God. He was so, I guess, persuasive and charismatic that he presented himself on a, yes, I'm somebody great, that even these Samaritans who were looking for a savior said, yes, he is, he is from God. He is the power of God. We see him. He had a false view of himself. He, uh, he was filled with pride. He was carried on by what he thought of himself. And say, Justin, yeah, but that was before he got saved. Remember in a couple of verses, he's gonna believe in Jesus. It's actually traced back that, that this Simon Magus is the father of Gnosticism. As in this dude, Gnosticism, here you go. Gnosticism is uh, in the know, if you will. Like, remember when we were going through 1 John a few years ago that the, one of the reasons why John was writing this is because there was this teaching going on that there was this secret knowledge that only some people were allowed to come there. Like God invited only some of them to get the super knowledge so even after this meeting with Peter, Simon kept going, listen, I'm something special. I've got this secret knowledge that, that God himself has revealed to me, that God himself has given to me, that the ultimate what we see is that Simon had a wrong view of himself. He presented himself in a way that he was God. He thinks he's not as really bad as he really is. So we see First of all, that Simon had a wrong view of himself. If I, don't, if, I don't, if I think I'm like a God, then I don't really think I need much help. Say, so Justin, I would, never, I would never consider myself a God. Oh, really? Oh, really? Do you rely on yourself for all things in life? Are you this end-all, be-all of every value and priority in your life? See, the reality is, is some of us were growing up in church long enough that we don't really think, we don't really know that we're as bad off as we actually are. I've got the credentials. Dude, I've been coming to church forever. I've been going to small group lately. My dad, sir, he was a deacon for 29 years. My mama worked in the nursery and she rocked every baby in Jones County. Like, that's the things that I've heard in Jones County. And what happens is we get so, our proximity to Jesus gets so familiar to us that there's no connection, but we're okay because we're not as bad off as so-and-so. Because I'm here, I'm close to it, I'm doing all the right things. And ultimately what we're saying is, 
I don't need Jesus to be good. I'm good with all my things externally. I don't think, I don't know if Simon at this point, I don't know when he actually, if from the beginning, he knew he was trying to be false or he thought he was good at first and eventually he realized, wait, I don't have this thing. But what we understand is that, yes, Simon was here doing his thing and he thought he was the, the stuff. Now, you may not ever be presumptuous enough to go to tell everybody, hey, look at me, I'm somebody great. But man, we operate oftentimes as if we are our own God. Second thing, because I got to keep moving. Not only did Simon have a wrong view of himself, he had a wrong view of salvation. Look at Joel 13. It says, but when they believed, everything looks good, by the way. When, and so when the Samaritans believed, uh, pause for a moment. These are the same Samaritans that for a long time, who were they following? Simon, right? So we, we read in verse 10, all of them from least to greatest were saying, this man is is the power of God. He's great. And then they get saved. And so Luke starts with that in verse 12. But when they believed, Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then look at verse 13. Even Simon himself believed. Notice it comes after that fact. Those people who were following him are now trusting in Jesus. Believed that after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And I think the end of verse 13 is really the kicker for us to understand where Simon's heart is. What has Simon's life been about? Magic, trickery, these big things. What is it that Luke indicates that is keeping him most interested? Look at the end of verse 13. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. I don't think, I don't think anything in the Bible is there on accident. I think it's intentional for our eyes to see. Wait, pause for a moment. He believed, he was baptized, but he was still chasing after these miracles and these signs, if you will. So ultimately, and we're actually going to, as we keep going, we're going to see it even expounded even more. But he was chasing after these experiences, if you will. He was mostly concerned about the signs and miracles, what he could get out of it. It didn't change his heart or his, his mind. What we understand about the gospel is the gospel transforms both our heart and our mind. How does that relate to us? See, I think that he was, he was ultimately chasing after an experience or a thrill or more cool things to see. And listen to me, man, for so many people, that's what their church is. Chasing after the experience. I don't like, maybe I'm, maybe as I'm getting, listen, I'm, I'm getting older, I'm tucking my shirt in now. <laughs> and like things that people say in church culture now, it's just like, like, welcome to our weekend experience. We're not chasing an experience, right? We're gathering together to worship the, the one true God. It's not about an experience. And so what we see is what, what, what Simon was all about is just seeing the, these big things, these supernatural things, because that's what, he was, that's what his heart was before. He's like, man, these things are awesome. I'm going to chase after these things. And what we see definitely in our culture, I told you I'm going to 
kind of preach at you today is what, what we see in our culture is this church hopping from one experience to the one experience to the next experience and this next experience. And what happens is you finally find somebody that checks off your boxes and you just settle there. Because man, listen to me. I'm, I'm not Simon the magician, but if you're chasing an experience, we have the people that, we don't have the resources, but we have the people, the, the talent, Man, we can create an incredible experience that have you hooked on an experience, but that's not being hooked on Christ. Anybody with me? Like, it's not like, and what we see, one of the issues with Simon is, man, he, he saw salvation as just this, this cool, seeing awesome things happen and man, watching God heal people, and, which would be awesome, right? But that's not what salvation is. Salvation is, is I am dead in my sin. But a holy and just God sent forth his son to be the propitiation, as in what that means is, is that God, because I'm sinful and he is holy, he is very angry at my sin. Listen to me, if I don't know Jesus, ex- having an experience with God is the most fearful thing. Am I with me? <laughs> like, I've got an issue that if I, ex- if I come in and experience God, I'm going to be consumed. Not in a good way. I'm going to be the Samaritans that James and his brother were talking about. Let's burn them dudes up. But God sent forth his son, Christ Jesus, as a propitiation, as in he, he became sin so that he could take on the very wrath of God that I should be consumed by. And in doing so, he, he pacified, he satisfied the very wrath of God so that he can look on me and you and just say, you're welcome into my presence. We're not chasing an experience. That's, that's foolishness. That's what Simon was after. I'm after Christ and his word and his truth. And just side note, if you're chasing a show, you're going to be disappointed. Because yes, we're talented and we're, you know, I say we, I don't put myself in the we category. We have some very talented people that are very gifted. But guess what? Sometimes their guitar strings break. Sometimes, heck, this morning, one of our ACs were messing up. And we had a whistle going all the way through. Like, we're going to have things that you're not going to like our experience one day. Hey, we're not, we're not offering experience. We're offering Christ and his word. Characteristics of a belief that doesn't save is that I'm not really as bad off as I really think, or I'm not as bad off, or I don't think I'm as bad off as I am. I have a wrong view about salvation. It's about what I can get out of it. The third thing about Simon is that he had a wrong view of the Holy Spirit, looking for 14 through 19. It says, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down, I'm gonna, we're going to come back to this, and he came down and prayed for them that they may receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on them, but they had all been baptized only in the name of the Lord, Jesus. And they laid their hands on them. And they received the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> verse 18, here we go. More and more, Simon's being exposed. Verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on the hands of the apostles, he offered them money. He had us at first, but now it's like, dude, your card to show it. Spade to spade, he said, hey, here's some money, saying, give me this power also, here it is, so that any one of whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. 
He had a wrong view of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not something you could buy. But why did he want the Holy Spirit? You ready? To give himself more authority and power and places of acceptance and prestige. The reality is, for many people, churchgoers, is that when we think about the Holy Spirit, we think about this church thing, it's less about, you know, this, if I come to church, then it gives me a certain standing. All right? Definitely here. If, if, if somebody asks me, hey, where do you go to church? Well, I go to Cross Point. You automatically, well, you may not want to say that too, out loud too much because you may also a heretic. Uh, I'm just kidding. But we all have that answer, right? Like, even if we haven't been to church in six months or eight months or 10 months or 12 months or three years or since last Easter, hey, we're to go to church. So say, Why? Because it gives us a certain standing. And Bible Belt, Jones County, has nothing to do with the power of the Holy Spirit, has nothing to do with loving Jesus. It has to do with people will see me the right way. Fourthly, Simon had a wrong view of sin. Look at verses 22 and 24. <clears throat> Actually, verse 19, he says, give me this power <coughs> so that I could do this. Verse 20, and Peter said to him, may your silver, and perish, may your silver perish with you because you, <clears throat> you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is now right before God. Repent, therefore, of the wickedness of yours, this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Man, what, like, what a statement. And look at his response. And Simon answered, will you pray for me to the Lord? Then nothing of what you have said may come upon you. What we see is that Simon here, he is less concerned and the less knowledgeable about his own sin and the offensiveness of his sin. He just didn't want for those things to happen to him. There's no record of him repenting. There's no record of him actually being saved. There's no record. Of, actually, the record goes against that because even from this point, he would continue this Christian message, but in a Gnostic type way. So I have to pause for a moment, ask the question, where do you stand with the Lord this morning? The salvation that you have experienced, <clears throat> or you say you've experienced, has it produced change in affections, change in mind, change in thoughts? Has it changed the way you view God and view others? Because this gospel that 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 the the apostles preached in the church, preached as they went in fear of their life is one that, that is effectual when it is believed. It has the power within itself through the Holy Spirit to change the human heart and mind. I'm gonna do it. Y'all can hang out with me for about 10 more minutes. If not, oh well. Number two, the second thing that we have to, this will be quick, the second thing that we see in this text, not only does Simon, really the first false profess, you know, professing, if you will. What we see is that God, God's work in displaying his design for the church 
Go to verse 14 again. I'll rapidly walk through this. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Remember, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. We saw that at the beginning of Acts 8. The, the, the Hellenistic Jews who were being persecuted, they were going. So whenever news got to Jerusalem, Peter and John came down, verse 15, and prayed for them that they may receive the Holy Spirit, for they had not yet fallen on any of them, and they had, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. What do we do with that verse? One thing that we have to keep in mind, this is maybe boring for you for a second, but we believe and we commit to God's truth, so we have to understand it. One thing that we have to keep in mind is there's a transitional nature to the book of Acts, right? There, there are things that are happening that have never happened before. Everybody with me? There, there's this church that Christ is building and it's just getting started. In Old Testament, there was just one group of people. In the New Testament, he says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. There's a whole another group of people, right? And we've already talked about one time the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans, right? That's where we started this thing. So I need you to keep that in mind. There were things that happened that are abnormal to the, to, to the everyday that we see in Christianity that we experience today. There are some first things, and this is one of them. The Samaritans, they believed that they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. So Justin, I thought we received the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. We do. Remember, this is the transitional nature of Acts. The church had began in Jerusalem, and now it's moving through the rest of the world. So why, then why did God have to wait on that? Why couldn't they receive the Holy Spirit? Hadn't already, remember that the Samaritans had their own little cocktail of religion. Right? Everybody with me? <clears throat> and so, but what's God's picture? Not three or four different churches, but one church. Right? Tracking with me so far? All right, so <clears throat> what we see so far is that there's these barriers of the gospels to all nations, right? So in, in chapters one through five, we see the gospel going to where? The Jerusalem Jews. In chapter six and seven, we see the gospel going to the Hellenistic Jews. We get to chapter eight, the gospel is going to where? The Samaritans. And then in chapters 9 and 10, through Paul and Peter and Cornelius, what we see is that the gospel now goes to the Gentiles. And so each one of these are big barriers that the church is going to have to come over. Right? Why? Because for hundreds of years, there's been tensions between all these people groups, but at the same time, God's making one new man. Right with me so far? So that's what he's doing. Think about it. Everything's good. These Samaritans are believing. But would the gospel make it to these places? And if it did, what happens if they trust Jesus? What happens if these dogs, that's what they would call them, what happens if they trust Jesus? Are they going to be the same part church of the Jews? Are they going to have their own first Baptist Samaritan or Samaria when they go to the Gentile nations? Are they going to be their own, like, free to do whatever they want to do? Everybody tracking with me? So what happens when it does get there? <clears throat> will there be different forms of Christianity in each group? Will they have the same experience as the Jerusalem Jews or would it be like a second tier type Christianity? So we see the news got back to the apostles in Jerusalem. 
by these Samaritans who believed they hadn't yet trusted. First, let me tell you what this is not teaching us. It's not teaching us that there's something that we have to experience in a second experience, if you will. There are many doctrines and denominations that, as a matter of fact, in Jones County one time, I got invited to go uh, share my testimony like 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Go in there and share my story. A lady comes to me afterwards. She said, hey, you've been baptized in fire yet? I said, no, just in Christ, water, you know, that kind of deal. I was being sarcastic because I knew where I was going. I was being a jerk ultimately, but she said, yeah, yeah, yeah. She said, are you, are you fully saved? Yeah, I'm fully saved. You spoken in tongues yet? No. You received the gift of the Holy Spirit, you know, the second experience? No. Well, you're not, you're not fully saved yet. That's right here in Jones County. And there's many denominations that go from this one text that say, until you have the second experience, that's when the Holy Spirit comes. And here's the danger. Listen to me, this is just food for thought. Is that you cannot build your doctrine off of one single verse standing in Scripture out of context with every other Scripture. All right, so maybe there is one verse that teaches us something. And there's not a single other verse through the whole Bible who doesn't teach elsewise. You can build a doctrine off that one verse. But in this one instance, remember, this transitional time of the gospel moving from the Jews to the Samaritans, this crazy thing happens. But you see the rest of the scripture where Paul talks about when you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have to take that one verse in context of everything. But anyway, so this is not teaching that there's a second experience that we were chasing. It is also not teaching <clears throat> that today some people have the power to give you the Holy Spirit. If you ever sniff, smell that, get out of there. It's not, also not telling us <clears throat> that uh, the power of the Spirit resides in only a certain group of people. If any time, if there's a pastor, preacher, leader because listen to me, Simon got exposed, but he kept going and people kept following him. Why? Because he had all the charisma in the world. If there's ever a time you're sitting under a man's voice and it's, it's uplifting him and bringing attention and glory to him and there's this all of a sudden this undue power that you give him, you're headed to a wrong place. It's not a safe place. And listen to me, if I ever, ever start leading you in that way, somebody call me out. Somebody punch me in the face. I mean that. So what is it teaching us? And there's the thing, is that God went to great lengths to display his design of one church. Why did God delay of the, of the Samaritans getting to the, the Holy Spirit? It's because there was a chance, ultimately, that the Samaritans just got saved and did their own thing, that they would never be connected with the Jerusalem Jews. And they would be free to operate however they wanted to. Make up their own cocktail again, if you will. I wrote it down like this, that the Jews needed to see the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit the same way they did. They needed to, they needed to know that they were not any greater than the Samaritans anymore. Peter and John needed to see the Holy Spirit come upon the Samaritans the same way it came upon them. <clears throat> They needed to see that these Samaritans are now their brothers and sisters in Christ. But the Samaritans also needed to see that they received the Holy Spirit the same way the Jews did. 
They needed to know that, that, that they would submit to the same authority and the lordship that these Peter and John were. They needed to see that they were included in the true church, that there wasn't this second-tier experience. Everybody with me? Like they needed God and his sovereignty delayed, I believe, the, the church in Samaria to receive the Holy Spirit because the, the Jews needed to come so that God could display at the very beginning, I'm creating one body. I didn't read, I read that verse first, went, how am I going to do it? How, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to deal with apostolic powers and things. What I saw was, no, listen to me, this is just God preserving his design for there to be one body, to be one bride, to be one church. And he, st- he, he clarified at the very beginning. The moment the first Samaritan, we see it again in Ephesus, but whenever the, when the Samaritans, so check this, you have the Jews, who were obviously Jew, Jerusalem Jews, you have the Hellenistic Jews who were kind of like, hybrid Jews, but not Jerusalem Jews. Then you had the Samaritans who were half Jews. And the next point, we got the people who are no Jews, right? So there's these barriers that are crossing all the way through. And one by one, what we see God doing in his sovereignty is making sure when it goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, that everybody sees the same Holy Spirit all the way through. Gosh, that's good, y'all. Like, that's, that's unbelievable. And I just want to read these passages, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be quiet. I'm going to move over. Galatians chapter 3. This is, man, this is Paul writing these passages that we know to be familiar, yet what we're seeing in Acts is God stepping in to making sure that it's displayed from the very beginning, right? 326, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you are baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And for you, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Not just the Jerusalem Jews. But if you're a Gentile who's been grafted in by the blood of Jesus, you're now the offspring of Abraham through his lineage. What? You keep reading in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that was the Gentiles and Samaritans, you who were far off, been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. This tension that was once between these two groups of people, his blood has brought us peace, both us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Who's are those who are near? The Jerusalem Jews. Who are those who are far off? The, the, the church at Ephesus, the Samaritans. The same gospel being preached. He's preaching peace to those who are near and who are far off. For through him we both have access in one spirit. There it is, one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God built, here it is, check this out, built on the foundation of the apostles. Time out for a moment. So these Samaritans, it was when the apostles came and laid their hands and the Holy Spirit came. Listen to me. What we see is even then they were built on the foundation of the same apostles. The Samaritans want this new religion. It wasn't this new sect of thing. No, they're built on, listen to me, that's us, BT-dub. Like when it gets to the Gentiles, that, that's us. 
We're built on the same foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being our cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows to the holy temple and the Lord. In him you also are being built together to a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Last one, I promise. You can tell me to get out of the way, but I'm not until I'm done. Ephesians chapter 4, 4 through 6. There's one body, one spirit, just as you recall, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Man, what a beautiful picture about God being very serious about his plan to build his church. All right? We talk about that a lot, how from Genesis to Revelation, God's unfolding plan to redeem man, so much so that even in the details of these Samaritans believing, you go, hold on. Holy Spirit, I'm not sending you yet. We got to make sure everybody sees this is, this is one, one body. It's a beautiful picture of God's sovereignly, but also in working in the affairs of man and the building of the church. Hey, where are you at this morning? Have you trusted in Jesus? I know I said a lot. Please forgive me. But if you're here this morning, have you trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior? Has that, has that faith, that belief that you have, has it produced a love for Christ? And I'm not saying like you love him perfectly, but you genuinely have a desire for him. When Ash and I got married, for some reason she married me eight years ago. When we got married, I thought I loved her eight years ago, right? But eight, eight and a half years later, I love her way more today than I did back then, but I loved her as much as I could back then and knew how to back then. It's not perfect. You may not believe it. I'm not perfect. <clears throat> Same way with our relationship with Christ. That man, when we first get saved, I don't expect you to love Jesus with everything you have. You don't know how to do that yet. But still, there's a heart change towards Christ and the things of God. If you have zero desire for the things of God, chances are you have a false hope. Can I be that blunt? If there is zero effect or work of the gospel of Jesus Christ effectually changing the way you live your life, then you probably have a false hope. If you have zero desire to ever open up your Bible and study the word of God or commune with the Father or come to church, then you probably have a false hope. And a church for you is maybe a lot like Simon, the magician, is it's about being seen a certain way, having some kind of comfort level, really don't give a dirt. I'm going to invite you this morning to trust in Jesus. Tell you how that works. The reality is, if that is you, God's already shown you that was you. That's what he does. This little feel, this little weird, uncomfortable, you don't have gas, it's the Holy Spirit that's actually saying, hey, he's talking to you. He's talking to you. He's the Holy Spirit's drawing you, saying, hey, listen, here's your opportunity. Trust in Jesus. And the Bible says he is faithful to save you, regardless of what you've done or have done. No, regardless of how long you've been fighting or playing the game, he'll still save you today. I'm going to pray. If you need to trust in Jesus this morning, I'm going to be standing in the back. If you don't want to talk to me, if you're a lady, feel more comfortable talking to a female, we can connect you to a lady. If you need to come down here and just do business with the Lord, you do that. You, you, you follow as the Lord leads. Father, we love you. We thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that when it's challenging, when it's 
Convicting, God, I pray that we respond this morning in a way that that honors and glorifies you. God, for the one you're saving this morning to confess a a false sense of security this morning, God, that you'll, you'll break that pride, you'll break that this callousness, God. You'll soften it through the power of your spirit and you'll draw them to you. Give them faith to call upon the name of Jesus. God, I pray that as we open your word and just see things, God, you'll grow our love for your word, your dedication to your word, because <clears throat> it is alive, active, and beneficial for all of us. <clears throat> so God, increase our love for it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.